Georgia's DBHDD is warning all Georgians that half of all opioid deaths happen at home when people take an oxy or a perk with a glass of alcohol for stress or to sleep. Learn more about protecting families from opioid overdoses at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And so we begin another week on Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Thank you all so much for being with us. Um, I'm really glad today that we have a panel of some of our favorite and top journalists uh, on the show. We're now finished with the runoff. Uh, Finally, it was a week ago tomorrow, the last day of voting. We all know what the outcome of the election was. But there's still an awful lot of assessment going on of what happened, not only in terms of Raphael Warnock's victory in the Senate race, but what happened in statewide races where Democrats felt they had their best opportunities in decades uh, to win some of those constitutional offices. It didn't happen. Um, And so we're going to look back a little bit on what happened in the election and how it's being processed by the parties. Uh, But we also uh, have a big story about the fact that uh, Kirsten Sinema, senator from Arizona, uh, announced just days ago that she's leaving the Democratic Party. She will become an independent in the United States Senate. And I want to talk about that in a few minutes, because I, I think, like a lot of people, wonder if that puts any kind of pall on the excitement Democrats had over winning the Raphael Warnock race, which gave them a little more breathing room, 51 seats. Does this change anything at all? And we're going to talk about that more with the panel today. So let's get right to introducing him. My Monday partner from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution is Patricia Murphy. Patricia, thank you for being back with us today. And I'm really glad you're here today because you worked in the Senate for quite a while. uh, And so you really understand the lay of the land in terms of what this may or may not really mean in a significant way for uh, how Democrats deal with their majority there. But in the meantime, thanks for being here, Patricia. Hey, Bill, thank you so much for having me. And I love that I get to join two of my favorite um, journalist pals on the panel. This is, I'm excited. Uh, that includes Greg Bluestein, your colleague from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, who once again today, even though the election is over, Greg, joining us from the driver's seat of your auto- automobile, thank goodness pulled over to the side of the road. Thanks for and being here, time, Greg. Yeah, it's weird not being here on a Wednesday, so maybe I'll, I'll, I'll kind of have to mm. remind myself that it's still Monday throughout the day, but it's an honor to be here. Thanks so much. And we're very glad to welcome Maya King, politics reporter for The New York Times, who covers the South and Southeast out of Atlanta. Maya, we've been so happy that uh, throughout the election season, we've been able to add you to our roster of rotating panelists. And I'm grateful to have you here today. Thanks for being with us. Yeah, thank you for having me. And uh, it's been really great being being on the show and, of course, covering this incredible uh, cycle alongside two incredible journalists. So thanks so much. Yeah, we've we've said a couple of times that uh, you couldn't have asked, I think, for a better assignment these days (laughs) as a politics reporter than being here in Georgia this year, certainly. All right, let's get to it. Um, Patricia, let me start with you. As I said, you have 
great deal of experience actually working for members of the U.S. Senate in Washington. So, okay, Kirsten Sinema announces that she's leaving the Democratic Party. She is going to become an independent. We know that Kirsten Sinema has been at odds with progressive Democrats uh, over some really significant issues. Uh, Democrats in Washington, part of the Democratic caucus in Washington, but also back home where uh, some of the Democrats or many of the Democrats who voted for her were sorry about some of the votes she took. She was not supportive of the change in filibuster rules, for instance, so that um, the Senate could act on changes in uh, voting rights. Uh, she was not a, an accomplice in any way, did not help Democrats in terms of the Build Back Better Act. So she has been a controversial figure in the Democratic Party. I think that's a fair starting point, yes? Yes, she's definitely been um, a uh, sort of a flashpoint of frustration for Democrats, especially Democrats, uh, I would say Democratic activists. Um, Senator Sinema has voted with the Democrats a huge majority of the time, more than 95% of the time. But on a few key votes, she has really withheld her vote along with Senator Manchin um, to say, to negotiate, uh, you know, less stringent controls, for example, on financial institutions to um, negotiate down spending bills. So she's, you know, she's pushed her position in a number of these votes because the Senate is so evenly divided. So any single senator could have a ton of leverage. She's one of the two who really pushed their leverage to the limits. Um, but I think by switching her party affiliation, um, it does a couple of things that sort of recognize the reality. She's probably going to get a really tough Democratic primary challenger. Um, I think it also, though, is going to really push Democrats to decide what they want to do with Kirsten Sinema, Joe Manchin, and any other senators that aren't towing the line completely. Is it good enough to be close enough to your positions? Um, she is still going to have her committee assignments through Democrats. Uh, she will um, not caucus with the Republicans. It doesn't change the balance of power in that way. But it is much more tenuous. It's a much more tenuous relationship with the Democrats. And activists have been so aggressive toward her. I think they also need to think carefully, do they want her to just caucus with the Republicans? Because she could do that, too. Um, Maya and then Greg, uh, I, I think um, uh, we know that there are many Democratic voters in Arizona who felt this was kind of a poke in the eye. They had elected her as a Democrat. She changed affiliations. Um, and of course, that happens frequently when a, 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 an incumbent is elected partly on the identification they have with their party and then changes parties. So she's certainly not unique in that. But I'm curious what you think, Maya, about the fact that not only are there some Democrats out there who are upset. My brother, Scott, lives in southern Arizona, and he texted me immediately his outrage <laughs> that she had changed uh, her affiliation. But I also wonder, is it to any extent a poke in the eye to Democrats and independents in Georgia who voted for Raphael Warnock thinking he was going to add to the cushion of Democratic, the Democratic majority in the Senate, or is it a mistake to think that it will have much impact there? I think in terms of how we could think about this in Georgia, it kind of underlines an argument that we heard from a lot of high-profile Democrats, including Barack Obama, when he came, came down to Atlanta saying, look, this is an add to the cushion. 
but it's also uh, a safeguard against a few Democrats who may not necessarily want to vote in line with their party in the Senate. Warnock is more guaranteed to actually tote the party line, especially on these issues that Democrats seem interested in revisiting, like voting rights and drug prices and other items that Cinema and Mansion have in the past kind of challenged. So there are probably a number of uh, disappointed Democrats, but I think for others, especially the more engaged ones who've been going to all of these events and sort of listening to the message from the top, they're like, okay, Warnock has already kicked in as the insurance policy that we wanted him to be on some of this stuff. Yeah, I agree with Maya. Um, this magnifies the importance of Senator Warnock's win. And we heard a lot, you know, especially from the hardcore activists, right? A lot of voters still have no idea who Joe Manchin or, or Kirsten Sinema is, but for, for the people who are more involved in, in following the uh, daily political grind, um, this was an important vote for them even more so because it meant there was an extra cushion just in case um, Kirsten Sinema or Joe Manchin defected on a key issue. Uh, this underscores why it was. And who knows if Kirsten Sinema would have taken this stance had Senator Warnock lost, right? If it was 50-50 Senate, it'd be a lot a lot more controversial to take a step like this. And so maybe this gave her leeway to do so. But either way, um, this this just goes right into that argument the Democrats were making. And that Senator Warnock was also making on the campaign trail, which is, hey, 51 is a lot more important than 50. It's still Senate control is not at stake, but it gives Democrats that much more wiggle room, that much more breathing room in, in a very hotly contested issue. Um, Patricia, you know, it's interesting. I mean, cinema is something of an enigma in Washington. She really charts her own path and always has. She doesn't like to talk to reporters up there very much. Uh, she doesn't explain her position on issues, even to other colleagues in the Senate, uh, very frequently. And, and as a result of that, she is relatively controversial, I think it's safe to say, Um I was interested in watching Meet the Press yesterday when uh, Chuck Todd interviewed John Tester, the senator from Montana, who maintains his position as a Democrat in a Republican state. Um, one of the reasons that people think that cinema has changed her affiliation is that she uh, assumed that she might have a harder time winning the Democratic nomination uh, in 2024 uh, because of some of her uh, positions, anti-essentially Biden positions on some issues. And and Chuck Todd pointed out that cinema actually has, and you sort of referred to it, a better record on voting uh, with Biden than John Tester, and yet uh, he seems very content to remain a Democrat. I'm just fascinated by that kind of dynamic in various states. Well, I think it has a lot to do with why um, either one of them became a Democrat in the first place. Um, Senator Tester, I saw that same interview. He said, listen, I'm an SDR Democrat. Uh, agriculture is still alive in Montana because of the work of the Roosevelt administration. Um, you know, Senator Cleland was an FDR Democrat as well because his dad had been in the CCC. So that was that was those gentlemen's connection to the party. Senator Sinema, um, I think I think it's fair to say she's been more progressive in the past. But as she was taking these positions on um, on bills in the Senate, she was starting to get like literally stalked by Democratic activists following her into a ladies restroom, filming her while they were asking her questions. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if at some point she thought to herself, do I even belong in this party anymore? She has not been going to the Democratic caucus lunches. Um, and so I think that uh, it has probably to do with 
a question of, is this really where I belong? And can I get reelected uh, with this party, the party that I'm a part of right now? Um, and we've seen that happen a couple of different times in the Senate. Um, Senator Jim Jeffords, I was a staffer in the Senate when Jim Jeffords switched from, uh, switched from Republican to Independent, but in a different choice, he decided to then caucus with the Democrats, and that flipped control of the entire Senate to the Democrats, um, absolutely made uh, Republicans totally livid with him. Um, somebody like Joe Lieberman lost his primary as a Democrat, and then because of voting, voting laws in Connecticut could then run as an independent, ran and won. And so I think there is also a reality in American politics that independents um, are a growing piece of the electorate. Um, and people increasingly feel alienated by either party that are more moving more and more to their extremes because of a lot of reasons. All right, Patricia, before we move on, help our listeners understand why it matters whether you caucus with the Democrats, even if you've moved into a position of independence. So we know that Bernie Sanders is an independent. He caucuses with the Democrats. Angus King is an independent. He caucuses with the Democrats. Why does it make a difference where you choose to caucus? So that makes a difference because that uh, depend that decides your committee assignments. The party will assign the committees. Uh, it also determines simply control of the Senate. Do they have 51 votes? Do they have 48, <laughs> three and 49 votes? Um, it depends on which. It literally determines which party is in charge. So Bernie Sanders and Angus King both caucus with the Democrats meaning they throw their support for leadership questions behind the Democrats. And then on committees, you then will have those two counting as Democrats in the partisan split for committee makeup. And right now it looks like Kirsten Sinema will continue to get her committee assignments through the Democrats. So party uh, control, especially on committees, will follow along party lines and she'll be counted as a Democrat in that in that way alone. She'll still be an independent, though. Yes, Maya, I think the Democrats, I think Chuck Schumer has made it clear she will retain uh, her committee assignments. Um, it, it's This whole situation, though, I think is, is important. And, and I think Patricia talked about it. There is a growing sense, and, and Cinema expresses it uh, pretty well, I think, that uh, she wants to get away from the extreme partisanship that prevents any action from happening in the Senate. Now, again, she's a very eccentric character, and there are those who believe that really what she is all about is bringing attention to herself more than anything else. Nevertheless, I don't think you can fault her for suggesting that she'd like to break away from the partisan gridlock that takes place up there. And here in Georgia, that's particularly uh, relevant, right, where you saw the role that independents and moderates played in sort of deciding uh, not only the general election, but the runoff. This is really crucial, very politically savvy group. But I do think the calculus for Senator Cinema is a little bit different as an independent senator than a voter who is tired of the gridlock and wants to just declare themselves independent. I do believe this is in part or in large part a power calculation Senator Sinema knows it's going to be a really tough re-election ahead of her uh, in the next few years. And so I think that's part of the reason, at least, why she considered becoming an independent. Um, it's just it's a little bit, it looks different for her than it does for a voter who wants to register as an independent to have more freedom just to decide, you know, which party they'd like to, to support. Um, but we will see this could also lay a roadmap ahead for how sort of eccentric characters in the Senate uh, can chart a path forward. And so far, she has been able to do that. 
Well, I got to say, Greg, and I, I know that Kirsten, I think Kirsten Cinema would really be offended by this comparison, but I can't help but think of the way in which a Marjorie Taylor Greene uh, calls attention to herself uh, through her uh, sort of independent stance. She's still a Republican, but she too has been more than willing to speak out against uh, more mainstream uh, Republicans up there. And maybe because she likes the attention. You're right. And just like Kirsten said, Marjorie Taylor Greene plays an outsized mm-hmm. role in a very closely divided chamber uh, where, you know, just a few defections here and there from House Republicans could really make House leadership's life a lot more difficult. All right, let's move on. I just I'm, I'm glad that you all have this perspective that says the Democrats here in Georgia and independents who voted for Raphael Warnock uh, should still feel that their vote did, in fact, help Democrats with their efforts to uh, control the majority in the Senate. I just really thought that was an important point to get across on our show today. Uh, Greg Bluestein, let, let's move on and talk about a, a, a piece that you wrote um, in, in which you tell us what I think we're already aware of, but you go into it in some depth. Uh, this election has put both Brian Kemp and Raphael Warnock in major roles in the national political spotlight. Brian Kemp in the Republican Party, because as we know, he beat back Trump's efforts to not just defeat him, but to grind him into the ground, essentially. Um, And he did it in such a way that despite his very conservative politics, he comes out almost seeming like a moderate and like a guy who may be charting a new course for the Republican Party moving forward. He's established a national pact to increase his exposure nationally. Raphael Warnock obviously wins a very tough uh, re-election campaign and uh, is also now being looked at as a major figure in national politics. So all that said, what does that mean for the people of Georgia? What does it mean for their own personal political trajectories? Yeah, first, you know, they're, they're both bona fide stars right now in their respective parties. Um, Brian mm-hmm. Kemp is no moderate. He, he's the, he'd be the last to tell you he's, he's a moderate. He's very conservative. Um, but with his, uh, his, his strategies and with his decision to reject Donald Trump's illegal attempt to overturn the election in 2020, um, he became a figure that more, uh, the more moderates and more independents might have supported um, because he represented that anti-Trump lane. And as you mentioned, he defeated not both, not just Donald Trump, but also Stacey Abrams, sort of an arch-villain of a lot of Republicans, not just in Georgia, but also nationally. Um, and then Raphael Warnock wins in a closely divided state twice in the span of two years. It was on the ballot five times since November 2020 and finishes first in each one of those races. So it's, uh, so his his uh, profile has, has just continued to, to soar in Georgia, what that means going forward is both of their moves, anything they do, will be closely watched, will be magnified uh, before a national audience. Um, they both have a tremendous number of challenges coming ahead. Governor Kemp now has that mandate he didn't have in 2018 when he only won by about a point and a half. He now has a, a clean and solid victory, and how he decides to use that mandate will be will be really interesting because he didn't say much. He has not said much about what he wants to do in his second term. We know some modest proposals. We know. Uh, what he wants to spend some of the budget surplus on, but we don't know that much else about what Governor Kemp wants to do. And Senator Warnock, 
is now divide, is now kind of navigating this really closely, even close, even more closely divided chamber than we thought it would be, as we just talked about. Um, and any decisions, what he wants to make a priority, any decisions he makes will also be under the, the microscope. When we start talking about 2024 contenders, well, we already are, but when we start talking about it more, I won't be surprised to hear their names kind of floated out there um, as potential uh, for Governor Kemp as a potential running mate, who knows, for Senator Warnock. But what is also important is down the line, uh, if, they, if they manage to use this political capital well and they want um, to be talked about as national candidates down the line, this will be really important. The, the next few years will, of course, be crucial to them. Um, so what does that mean, Patricia, to those of us in Georgia? I mean, what does that expanded clout mean in terms of the ability of uh, the, both of those men, uh, certainly Warnock in the United States Senate, talking to President Biden about things that the federal government can provide to Georgia, but uh, uh, Brian Kemp having expanded uh, a power base um, to do what he needs to do for the state? Does he have a new coalition he can work with in the legislature? How do you see all of this being a benefit to the people in the state? Well, so I think for Governor Kemp, it just increases his power here in the state. It really means that he um, is somebody who is not just a first-term governor in a Republican state. It means he is um, somebody to watch now and in the future. And that's really important. It means he's not just a lame duck governor. He is a governor who's likely to be on the scene in a big way for some time. Um, for Senator Warnock, of course, it means that um, he is not just a senator who is quite junior in seniority still, which he really is. Um, he's somebody who is um, kind of a, a figurehead, a party leader. He's got that huge sweep of history behind him with Ebenezer Baptist Church. I think also for Democrats, um, at a time that they've chosen the first black speaker, it is a time when um, when this party is really ready for real leadership positions to be accrued by, um, by minority members, not just sort of uh, heads of caucuses. Uh, and so I think that both of them have um, really big futures ahead of them. And another reason is because Georgia is a battleground state. Both of them ran incredibly smart campaigns, very disciplined campaigns. And so each of the two of them has cracked the code on how to win in this environment. And that is the state's environment is now reflective of the national environment. And so they really have the goods to back up what uh, they can expect in terms of their future um, influence in the days ahead. Maya? Well, I want to echo a lot of what Patricia said, especially in terms of how they ran their campaigns. I think that's also a reflection of the incumbent, the, the fact that both of them are incumbents. That made a really big difference because they just both kind of know how the system works now. Um, I am skeptical of seeing their names thrown around too much in 2024, but I do think that if President Biden is indeed going to run again, um, those will be very sought after surrogates. Brian Kemp as a voice against Joe Biden and Raphael Warnock as a voice for, because we know that Georgia is going to be at the heart of a lot of this. It's firmly established itself as a swing state. And so you're going to have these kind of dueling really powerful voices in government and politics in this state um, who I think will play a large role, not only in vouching for the, for the president, but also in just kind of creating more messaging for the party and how you move forward, how you win tough races for Democrats in a swing state and for Republicans sort of against the, the influence, I think, of former President Trump. 
And the other thing that I've been looking at, too, is their staffing. I've seen a, heard a lot of whispers from Washington around this, uh, this higher interest in Warnock's staff, his campaign manager, his strategist, and others who have now um, been in talks about possibly being drafted to the White House or to a Biden 2024 operation. I think that's just one other reflection of how powerful Georgia has gotten, how well run these campaigns were, but again, how Georgia politics has now gone to, the, to national politics in a really big way. It strikes me, Greg, that at the very least, you mentioned, you know, Kemp, a potential running mate for whoever the 2024 Republican is. Um, I've actually, as you, I think we all have, have heard, is there a possibility that some Democrats would like to see Raphael Warnock as a potential candidate for president himself? Although Maya points out, that's, you know, there's reason to be a little skeptical of that. But one thing for sure, Greg, is that both of these men have secured for themselves, unless something dreadful happens to either of them in terms of their political uh, 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 arc in the months ahead, both of them have secured major speaking uh, uh, places on the national party conventions of the Democratic and Republican national conventions. Oh, yeah. Look, they're, they're bona fide. They're, 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 they're part of the conversation. They're part of the national discussion right now. And I'm with Maya. I'm, I'm skeptical of any sort of talk about them actually being candidates, although I will not be surprised whatsoever if Brian Kemp is vetted as a running mate. Um, uh, and, and there's talk about them down the line later on this decade as they play their cards the way that the, if they actually want this, <laughs> that role as well. Um, but they're part of the national discussion right now. And to think about Brian Kemp, you know, four years ago, you, you never thought, I mean, a year ago, he's being booed regularly at Republican gatherings. And now, Polls show he's the most popular Republican in the state, and he's being again being part of the he's part of the, the dialogue about uh, about a, a being a national candidate. Um, so it's ama- amazing to see his turnaround and his personal reputation in Georgia. And Senator Warnock, um, a year ago, a lot of people would have bet against him winning. Uh, six months ago, a lot of people would have bet against him winning uh, with all the talk about a red wave. And now he's very much part of uh, of that discussion as well. Again, how they. How they decide to you know, pursue their agendas over the next few months will be really telling. All right, let's do this. Let's get to our first break of the show. And when we come back, uh, we have a lot more to talk about with our panel today. You're listening to Political Rewind. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Quick programming note before we continue with the panel. I think those of you who listen to the show regularly know that when we have partisan panelists on the show, we balance them. We try to have a Republican and a Democrat. Um, We're going to do something a little different uh, in in some upcoming shows, including one tomorrow. We're going to have uh, panelists of just one party uh, talking about what they see as the future uh, coming out of these elections. So tomorrow we're going to talk to Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan, to uh, Eric Tannenblatt, 
who I think many of you know from this show as somebody who's been deeply involved in Republican politics for a very long time, one of the major bundlers in Republican politics, um, and Jordan Fuchs, who is uh, Deputy Secretary of State, but she uh, uh, went into, she had a leave of absence to run Brad Raffensperger's campaign. And the reason we're going to talk to them is because all of them are looking at how to chart a new future for both the Georgia Republican Party and what they hope for the National Republican Party. Um, is there a way for the party to move away from Donald Trump? Here in Georgia, they won all of the uh, statewide races, as we've said, but they lost the U.S. Senate race. So how do these three see Republicans moving forward? What's the messaging that they think will win back uh, many of their people? And how do they move beyond Donald Trump? And that's on tomorrow's show. We'll do the same thing with Democrats in uh, the weeks ahead. Um, and so I hope you'll uh, tune in for these conversations. Okay, Maya King of the New York Times is with us. So is Greg Bluestein and Patricia Murphy, two of our favorites from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Patricia, uh, I, I want to talk about a column that you wrote about the rather remarkable and surprising uh, Twitter storm from Lauren Groh Wargo, who is Stacey Abrams' closest advisor, she really, Senator, I think, took a lot of people by surprise for the way in which she positioned Stacey Abrams' loss. And, um, and, and there was a lot of ill will as a result of what she said. So first of all, what are some of the points that Lauren Wargo put out just a day after, I think, or two days after Democrats were celebrating the Warnock victory? What were some of the major points that you saw that uh, you think uh, are worthy of our talking about today. Right. So, of course, there are a lot of points because it was a 52-tweet thread. <laughs> but um, the parts that jumped out at me and jumped out at a lot of Democrats uh, were that um, the belief that the 2022 race really was unwinnable for Stacey Abrams um, because of Abrams' own work leading up to the 2022 elections. Um, she said that by... Uh, working so hard to advance voting rights, to um, really push Georgia ahead as a battleground state, to act as a high-profile surrogate for Joe Biden. She, in the process, became so totally demonized by Republicans that she couldn't have won statewide um, after sort of the mauling that she got by GOP operatives. Um, it's completely true that Stacey Abrams was demonized and Republicans are running against her way before she got into her second governor's race. Um, however, uh, I don't think anybody wanted to see anybody describe this state as unwinnable. Um, a second point that she made was that um, she went into great detail about how she and Abrams recruited Warnock for the Senate on behalf of Democrats only after Abrams turned down a request from Senator Schumer to run for Senate. Um, then they uh, got to work in, uh, in her uh, in her tweet, as she describes it, um, working to raise money for him, working to clear the deck so that he could uh, get an endorsement from Washington Democrats and, and just took a lot of the credit for the Warnock win. So none of the blame, but a lot of the credit for the Warnock win. And that obviously struck lots of Democrats as um, not 100 percent the exact way that history unfolded. 
Um, they also wanted them to give more credit to Warnock. Um, and uh, also the timing in particular, the day after Warnock won, um, was, uh, I think, also problematic and was described to me, and I think to Greg, because I read Greg's story as well, um, one Democrat described it to me as just a deranged retelling of history. Um, I just don't think she needed to do it. People in the state, Democrats in the state, still value everything that she did. But I think this tweet has really um, added some antipathy to the to people's recollections of 2022 now. Yeah, uh, Greg, by the way, just one aspect, and there's a lot more we'll talk about here, of, of what the uh, treats had to say that they recruited Warnock. I mean, frankly, and I'm sure you were in the same position I was, I can remember going back to 2017 or so, going to uh, to, to church on a Sunday morning at Ebenezer Baptist to get a chance to say hello to Raphael Warnock after the service and say, so what are you thinking, uh, Pastor Warnock? Are, are you thinking about making a Senate race in 2018? People were obviously talking about him way back when. Yeah, Bill. I mean, I was writing about him running in 2016, and he decided not to run in 2015. I was at the church. This is an aside, but I was at the church um, on Sunday, and I realized I'd been there so many times that the doorman (laughs) knew my name. And I had to tell one of them yesterday because I had to rush to go to synagogue, believe it or not, to go to a Hanukkah party. I said, don't worry, I'm going to synagogue right now. I left a little early. But no, he has been in that conversation uh, for the better part of the last decade. Now, it is true that Stacey Abrams helped clear the field for him. There's no doubt, because we reported contemporaneously in 2020 that that was what was going on. Um, but she did not single-handedly recruit him. She she encouraged him to run. They're, they were close friends. I think they still are. Um, but to say that I got an explosion of text messages um, around the same time Lauren Groorger sent her tweet storm out is an understatement, because there's a lot of Democrats who only a couple of them would go public but a lot who were privately grumbling, not just grumbling, that's probably another understatement, but, uh, but really upset um, because of the timing. A day after Senator Warnock's uh, uh, you know, epic victory, um, which got a lot of attention, uh, and also the tone, which, as Patricia said, lacked accountability. Talked more about why Stacey couldn't win forces out of their control rather than um, missteps, miscalculations. Uh, they might have made in their campaign. Now, who's to say whether or not anyone could have beaten Governor Brian Kemp, given the advantages he had coming out of that 52-point victory over David Perdue? We just won't know if another candidate could have done it. But what Democrats were hoping to see was at least a little bit of of uh, of, of accountability, about, of, 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 of just blame-sharing rather than just trying to take credit for uh, Senator Warnock's victory without any sort of a skeptical or cynical look at their own take. Um, my, I also, and this is very self-serving, I suppose, and maybe for all of us as journalists, it could be said the same thing. We could say the same. Uh, blaming the media for creating the impression that Brian Kemp is a moderate uh, because he opposed Donald Trump. I, I certainly know that on this show, we frequently pointed out that uh, that Brian Kemp was no moderate and uh, that he was very conservative, but was doing a good job creating the impression he was based on his opposition to Trump. So you're welcome to comment on that. But but the larger point I think Patricia makes in her column is if this is the way that Democrats are going to respond to losses in the governor's race, other statewide races, then they're not going to get very far if they don't do a more forensic look at what went wrong, right? 
Yes, and I I don't think that they will necessarily be um, be looking to Twitter to figure out exactly where <laughs> they went wrong. And I'm saying that as someone who's written some pretty tough stories about the Abrams missteps and have been met with a lot of that kind of uh, pushback to the points that we made. But the truth is that Warnock and Abrams ran fundamentally different campaigns in 2022. They appealed to different groups while they still had, I think the Abrams playbook has still proven itself to be very strong and durable in terms of running up the score in Metro Atlanta and being really aggressive and going after Democratic votes in other parts of the state. At the end of the day, I mean, it was just a very different political environment. They were running against two very, very different um, opponents as well. And um, both Brian Kemp and Raphael Warnock, again, had the benefit of incumbency. And I think that made a very big difference, too. Still, I will echo all the points that were made to write to, to send off 52 tweets two days after the election. I, it just I got a lot of texts and calls as well for people who just said that this feels like sour grapes. Um, we would have loved to see this on the one year anniversary of Warnock's win rather than two days after. Um, and people, again, though, who to speak to the power of Abrams political apparatus did not want to air these grievances out on the record. There are a lot of people who have some frustrations, but, you know, they'll text it to, to Greg and Patricia and I and say, this is off the record, but this is crazy. <laughs> and, <laughs> and then you have to call the people who will go on the record with the really spicy quote, uh, which, you know, is not a really huge universe of people yet. So it, it's I mean, it's these two truths are the same. I, I think we can hold these two things in, in at the same time. Right. That Abrams yeah. is yeah. an extremely powerful and accomplished person and has really changed the state's politics. And also her campaign made a lot of missteps that people were, you know, frustrated with. And this tweet thread, I think, exemplifies both of those truths at the same time. Yeah, I, I th that's really an important point, I think. And Patricia, before we close out this part of the uh, conversation, I do think, you know, part of the reason I think these tweets hit people the wrong way is that there are, as Maya points out, there are so many things to admire about the way in which Stacey Abrams did change the calculus of the of how Democrats can win. I mean, we can go back to 2018 and her uh, primary race against Stacey a Evans, when Stacey Evans pursued a path backed by kind of, you know, the old yellow dog Democrat uh, uh, political leaders of uh, like Roy Barnes, Buddy Darden, who believed that you could still build coalitions of Democrats from across the state by having a more conservative message. And the genius of Stacey Abrams in that campaign was to say, no, we have to chart a new path forward. There are progressive voters in this state. We have to reach out and they can help us win. And for the, and I suppose that alone certainly can be credited with helping Raphael Warnock, it, you know, get a big uh, uh, power boost that he then uh, took advantage of, even as he expanded the coalition in this last election. Um, yes, and I also think that uh, Joe Biden can thank Stacey Abrams for um, really ceding the territory for his victory. Now, he also needed a big boost from Donald Trump, um, but I don't think that would have been possible without Abrams' ground game and without her really convincing people that progressives in the state were real and they needed to be talked to, needed to be activated and delivered to the polls. Um, but I have been struck by um, sort of the just the total jubilation at Democrats after Warnock's win, which is completely understandable, 
but a lack of introspection after November Mm -hmm. saying, well, you know, people just didn't understand how bad uh, Brian Kemp was. Um, People, what do you want a medal? (laughs) What do you want a medal for not acceding to an insurrection? I don't think they understood um, that Kemp was popular for a number of reasons, but also the campaign he ran really spoke to people's concerns. It was also very disciplined. And so something's broken for the Democrats right now. They have this ascendant um, voting block, yet just lost the governor's mansion by eight points and lost every other statewide race except for Warnock's by huge margins with their brightest stars. So something's wrong. But I didn't see a lot of Democrats saying, "Okay, now what do we need to do to fix it? Greg, you want to make a last point before our break? Yeah, one thing that we have definitely learned is is that a candidate should adapt. And Senator Warnock adapted. In 2020, he ran uh, basically the, uh, some, uh, some of the same playbook that Stacey Abrams ran with, focusing on liberal policies, focusing on support for Joe Biden, focusing on issues, barely talking about his opponent. Um, and he went into this campaign. This wasn't a late shift. He went into this 2022 campaign knowing that that model would not work in an environment like this, a climate like this, where Joe Biden's popularity is 40 percent. So, or lower than that in some cases. So while Stacey Abrams continued to, to talk about her support for Joe Biden, and look, you got to give it to her. She was authentic, and she always talked about how important it was for Democrats to be authentic, and she was. But in that case, it backfired. And who knows if that's the reason, if that's the, you know, if, if it would have changed anything had she run a more a campaign more like Senator Warnock. Um, and it would be hard for her to have even imagined doing that, given her, her past statements. But Senator Warnock adapted and ran to the middle while trying to energize the base, and Stacey Abrams didn't quite do that. Okay, got to get to the final break of the show. Uh, some Republicans are reassessing right now after the Warnock victory whether they made a mistake in changing the terms of the runoff period or whether we should have runoffs as we've had them in the past. We'll talk about that after these messages. Maya King, you worked with your colleague Reed Epstein on a piece for the New York Times in which you looked at how Republicans in the legislature, excuse me, are reassessing whether they made mistakes in how they changed the length of the runoff period. After the nine-week runoff period in 2021 that elected John Ossoff and Raphael Warnock, they thought, well, we gave them too much time, let's shorten it, we'll just have a four-week period. But Raphael Warnock won, so now they're looking at whether they need to change the length of time for a runoff, but maybe even more so, they're looking at the threshold, which is something that's happened historically in this state in the past. Not a 50% plus one, but perhaps a 45% plus one. Tell us a little bit about what your reporting uh, showed you about what they're looking at. Well, Reed and I spoke to uh, the Secretary of State and sort of tried to get him to walk us through, you know, how he saw this going. And it's true that Republicans really had a great year in terms of the elections that they won. I mean, they won entirely statewide. So I think it will be um, a pretty tall order to try to fundamentally change the runoff rules. But that does seem to have been one of the bigger sticking points. Um, the Secretary of State also expressed some concern about how long the lines were at some polling locations and also added that if they do nothing else, they consider just adding more precincts to the map uh, during a, a four-week runoff, which 
I imagine maybe um, a little bit more amenable in the state house. But he did say that his office plans to take these recommendations to the state house when session begins in 2023 and uh, see if lawmakers will hammer this out. Greg and Patricia know a lot more about state house politics than I do and the likelihood that, you know, Georgia has like a ranked choice runoff. I'm, I'm not quite sure about, but it was an option that um, that Brad Raffensperger threw out there. So um, I, I expect that this will certainly be something that a lot of state lawmakers are talking about next year. Greg? Yeah, if you think about it, not only this, but also the primary schedule, uh, we, we could be going into a session where election law changes are once again in the center uh, of the of the national and the nation's attention, and of course Georgia's attention, um, I think there'll be discussions about whether to lengthen um, the, uh, the the runoff period from four to five weeks um, to give more time for early voting. I think there'll also be some proposals to um, shorten early voting period because you know a cynical take that's <laughs> the early voting is where Democrats um, tend to uh, roll up a score against Republicans. And so there'll be some GOP efforts. Um, I don't know if they'll go anywhere, but to, to, to look at that. And as Maya said, the Secretary of State has his own proposals. Um, but look, you know, uh, setting a 45% threshold um, would have helped Republicans in the 2021 runoffs, but not in, you know, the, 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 this, this past year, because it was Senator Warnock, of course, who outpolled Herschel Walker. Um, so it's going to be really interesting to see where the party divide falls on this. And this could be one of these issues where it really splits Republicans and Democrats internally, um, because there's many Democrats I've talked mm. to that want to keep the runoff system as it is. And many Democrats who are tired of it, um, Republicans the same way. And there's the voters who are just exhausted by this entire process, as we all can attest. <laughs> Patricia? Yeah, I think with all of these proposals, there are sort of political problems and then functional problems. And we certainly saw with the runoffs. Um, the functional problem where there's incredibly long lines at the um, at the early voting precincts and uh, the legislature, although they shortened the window from 17 to five days of early voting statewide, they had not done anything to expand the number of places where they could go. They also um, moved the, the drop boxes inside the precinct so you couldn't drop off your ballot um, if there was a long line and you had an absentee ballot handy anyway. So um trying to game out which party does better with changes to these systems really seems like it's been nailing jello to a wall because uh, what you think will hurt democrats actually seems to help them in some cases and vice versa so but i do it does feel like they need to make some kind of more durable change to um, the way this runoff system is working because the the nine weeks was required by those military and overseas ballots coming in. Um, but I also really agree the idea of ranked choice voting uh, going statewide in Georgia is incredibly hard to imagine because it's simply just hard to explain, hard to follow, hard to uh, explain to voters. And it, I think it would be twice as hard to explain to lawmakers. So um, that's one idea that I don't really see taking hold, but I could see them reduce that threshold. So as we move toward the legislative session and as some of these plans continue to bubble up, we'll talk about them in more depth because there are a few more aspects of it I'd really love to get into. But with the limited time we have left, here I have these three outstanding political journalists on the show. And so I want to ask them each briefly, what's next? Maya King, you've now covered this Georgia election uh, full time, more than full time. I'm sure you've been exhausted from it. What are you looking at next? What are your editors saying to you about what they think 
you ought to be focusing. I'd love to get your thoughts on that. Yeah, I, I won't talk too out of turn. I haven't had this conversation with my editors yet, so this might just be okay. like me saying what I want to do. Um, but, you know, my directive is the South, so I'm, I'm looking forward to writing more regional stories about what's happening in the Deep South and the changing politics of this area, especially as it relates to state houses. Um, but Georgia's not going anywhere. I mean, it could possibly be an early primary state. Atlanta could possibly host the DNC. There are a lot of different things happening down here. So I will I will remain in Atlanta for as, as, as long as I can. Um, but I'd also like to spend some time in South Carolina, which we know has become also mm. um, a lot more politically relevant and, of course, is right next door. So, OK, Maya, real quickly, have you covered a national convention in your career so far? I covered the COVID national conventions in 2020, oh. but um, I have never been on the ground at one before. Okay. I mean, my my only caution there is be careful what we wish for. <laughs> That's true. Talk about it. Talk about being exhausted. Greg Bluestein, what's next for you? <laughs> uh, you know, we have these two national figures, and so everything they do will be huge news. And so uh, we'll be closely following them. Of course, we have a legislative session where you know we always we had our big AJC internal meeting about we call it a retreat about the legislative session just a few days ago. Uh, 20 people, and we all had our best predictions. But as we all know, even when it looks like it could be a tame legislative session, something big happens. So we'll be on the lookout for that. And um, I am also looking to travel a lot more this coming year, just like Maya. Yes. So um, this year I'm going to get back on the road this summer for my um, uh, politics road trip because I love getting out to uh, the cities and towns that really are affected by all these decisions that are that the people who get elected are making. Um, and then also, Bill, do not forget about that trial of uh, former President Donald Trump at the Fulton County Grand Jury. I think Georgia is just about ready to get uh, ready for its close up because I think we're going to have um, potentially huge uh, consequences coming out of that. So I think we are just getting started as um, the center of the political universe. Okay, I thank you for all of those. One last quick question for each of you. Maya, start with you again. Have you had a chance to get any rest given how intensely you covered this election? <laughs> yes, yes, I did. I spent most of Sunday on my couch catching up on TV and just <laughs> chilling. So I, I'm looking I'm looking forward to resting even more uh, the latter part of this month. But yes, I have already started that process. I am glad to hear that because when the new year starts, we are hoping we can have you come back well rested to continue <laughs> being part of our show. Patricia, you got some I rest too? Bill, I said 13 glorious hours on Friday night. It was amazing. And then <laughs> Saturday morning, we had basketball games starting and horseback riding lessons and laundry to fold and all the things. So it was back back at the things I actually really have missed having all my time to do. Yeah, Patricia Murphy, political writer, uh, reporter, columnist, and mom. Greg Bluestein. Swim meet this weekend for a kids' basketball games and a sleepover party with my with my oldest daughter and her two best friends. So not much rest yet. All right, Greg Bluestein, Patricia Murphy, Maya King. Thank you for a wonderful conversation. And again, thank you for continuing to be willing to join us for Political Rewind. We're out of time for today. As I said, tomorrow we're going to talk to Republicans in the state, including Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan, about what they see as the future of this party. They hope without a Donald Trump. All that and more coming up on the show. 
See you then. In the meantime, I'm Bill Nygut. Take care and please stay healthy. Bye-bye, everybody.